Well, let's read together from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we come together to worship today. We come into your presence with your people. We come to sit under your word and hear what you have to say to us. So Father, I pray that as we consider the words of our Lord Jesus, consider his teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that we would be changed by these words, that our hearts would be lifted up to understand what we are called to, to understand the kingdom that we are a part of, to understand the joy and the beauty and the blessing and the splendor and the delight of that kingdom, Father. We pray that we would have eyes of faith to see what is promised for us, what is our identity as believers. And as we gain those eyes of faith that come from the reading of your word, may we go out from here as your people who are ambassadors of a joy that belongs to another place. And may we, as we do so, impact the world for Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be glorified in your word this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish the world were different. I wish the world was not like it is. Just the other day, I was in Dubai and I had the opportunity, somebody invited me to come and have breakfast at this restaurant at the top of the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa. And so we're sitting there in this restaurant and I'm looking out over the entire city, hundreds of different skyscrapers everywhere, seeing cars driving around, people going about like ants, you know, going about their daily business, seeing the minarets of of mosques, you know, hundreds of them in every part of the city, and again was overwhelmed by the reality that the place where I live, this city, these people are are lost. They are they are entangled in the in the deceptiveness of 
false religion and that deception leads to so many other horrible things. It leads to cruelty and to injustice and to blindness and to, and to much suffering. It's true in Dubai. It's true throughout the 1040 window. I wish it were different. I wish it wasn't like that. I wish my city was not so broken. And then I come here, come home, back to Texas, and I, and I see more lostness. I see a, a different kind of lostness maybe, but lostness nonetheless. Everywhere I look, I see a celebration of what God has called sin. I see the elevation of foolishness. I see a hatred for wisdom. Even in the American church, I see anger and fighting and division, and I, and I wish it were different. So what am I going to do? And what are you going to do? How are, how are we going to change the world? Because that's what we want, right? That's what all of us want together. We don't want it to keep being the way it is now. We want the world to be different. We want the world to change. We don't want to just accept the broken state of things, but we want to be instruments of change. So how would Jesus have his people, have us live? How would he have us be in our place and in our time so that the brokenness of the world is, is pushed back and that people turn from darkness to light and to give glory in our Father who is in heaven? That's the question I'm asking as we come to this text in Matthew 5, 1 to 16. And I think in this text, Jesus is going to answer those questions. He's going to tell us what kind of people change the world. This is, of course, the beginning of a much larger sermon by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount that goes from Matthew 5 to 7. But I think as I read this, that 5, 1 to 16, or really 5, 3 to 16, are kind of their, their own little self-contained sermon that by themselves, these verses sort of establish the agenda for the rest of the sermon to follow. And, you know, we've all heard a lot of sermons, right? And we've heard the, the kind of sermon where the, the preacher gets up there and has a few points and then kind of concludes with a couple of application thoughts. And, you know, I teach preaching in the seminary and I tell my students, you know, it's good to have maybe two points, maybe three points, maybe four points. Something in that area is good. You don't want to get too much beyond that. But I read this text and I see Jesus is going to give us nine points. He's got nine points, and then he's got some applications. And so we're just going to follow Jesus' outline, and we're going to do nine points with a couple of applications. And so it's a nine-point sermon, two points of application, and we're asking this question, with whom does God change the world? So look at verse 3. Jesus gathers these crowds of people. They're up on the mount. He's going to start teaching and get to 5-3. And you see that first word there. What is it? Blessed. Blessed, makarios in the Greek. It's the key word in this section. The same word, you'll see, begins each of the next nine sentences. And that's where we get the, the name Beatitudes, which means to bless. And this word makarios, or blessed, it just means to be in a state of good fortune. It means things are going well. It means that you're satisfied, or we could say happy. It's a word that means happy. And so how can you change the world? It's it just quick observation at the beginning. It seems like Jesus' answer is much less about your intelligence or about your skills or about 
you, you know, your, your, your gifts and your talents, but it seems to have much more to do with your external demeanor that flows from your internal disposition. You are, in a word, happy. And he says it again. He says it nine times. You are happy. Why? Why are Jesus' followers, why are we as Jesus' disciples, why are we happy? Well, let's see. You're happy, first of all, we could say from verse 3. You're happy because you bring nothing to God. You bring nothing to God. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right there in this verse, that's the good news of the gospel, is it not? Because all false religion, whatever false religion you find anywhere in the world, that false religion has the goal of you accumulating for yourself spiritual wealth. It's saying you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. you got to do all of these works so that you can gain wealth. You can, you can come to God, and you can say, God, look how hard I've worked. Look at all my, my, spirit, my good deeds. Here's my wealth. Now you got to do something for me. That's what false religion teaches, what it does. So Muslims and Mormons and even confused Christians live on this treadmill of having to, to keep all the rules and do all of the good deeds and then be able to show that to God, show their spiritual wealth to God. But the gospel says you can never do enough because you are a sinner. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. That one sin is enough to condemn you before God's perfect righteousness. And that quest to keep doing more, to, to, to do enough to present your wealth to God, inevitably leads to pride. It leads to misery. But in the upside-down reality of the gospel, we know that salvation comes not by gaining spiritual wealth, but by declaring spiritual bankruptcy, by admitting that your own works can never be enough, that the only the perfect Son of God dying in your place on the cross can forgive your sin. It's not the healthy who need a physician, Jesus said, but who? But the sick. The sick. You're sick, but you have a physician. And when you cry out to that physician, when you cry out, God have mercy on me, the sinner, when you turn to that physician in repentance and faith, yours, it says, is the kingdom of heaven. You're happy because you bring nothing to God. You don't have to do it happy are the poor in spirit. Point two, you're happy because your grief will end. Now, I, I look out here and I see some gray hair, and so some of you are old like me, and, and you can remember back 20 years ago or so, and there used to be this guy that was on TV, and he was called the Iraqi Information Minister. Okay, this was back when the U.S. was invading Iraq, about 2003, and so this guy from, was like an Iraqi government official. He'd do these press conferences, and he would say the craziest things. And he would talk about how, like, oh, we, you know, have these magical weapons that dissolve all of the American tanks and that all of the American troops are running in, in fear into the sea and, you know, we're going to defeat the United States and we're preparing our invasion. And he would say all these crazy things that made it sound like he's winning and their, their you know, their country is going to defeat the U.S., when in reality, like just behind him, you've got, you know, like the American tanks rolling in. They, they, they were losing. His military was being overwhelmed by the U.S., but he was presenting this facade of like we're in control and we're doing great. And see, when we talk about Christian happiness, 
some people think that, that we're kind of living in that similar state of denial. They're like, hey, have you looked around? Do you know what the world is like? You know, people are hurting. You know, people are sick, that people are suffering in the world. And so, so you're going to be like this, this Baghdad Bob, this Iraqi information minister. You're going to put on this false facade of, you know, smiling. You're like Pollyanna with your little, your little fake smile while the world is falling apart. People make that accusation against Christians. And I guess we could make the same accusation against Jesus when he says in verse 4, Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus is not naive. Jesus is not in denial. Jesus is not toxically happy. Jesus, of all people, knows how corrupted the world is. He knows how sinful the world is. He knows how broken the world is. He knows the suffering of disease and loss and sin. Jesus mourned. Jesus, his people, do mourn. We, we weep and we weep with those who weep. We are, you know, Christians ought to be the most realistic people in the world because we have a theology that explains the suffering and the brokenness around us. In our rebellion against God, this world is not the place it was supposed to be. So we mourn. But as Christians, we always mourn with hope. And we have that hope, you know, you know, we have that hope because as we weep, we can, eat, we can even weep, you might say, with, with happiness because as we're weeping, we're anticipating that day in the presence of the Lamb when God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So we weep by faith because we know that we will be comforted. And you may have been taught at some point that there's a difference between happiness and joy and that some people say, well, happiness is like worldly and that's based on your circumstances, how things are going. But like joy is more spiritual and more godly and that even when things are going bad, joy is like somewhere like deep down in your heart. And so you can be unhappy, but you can have joy. Some people have taught that. And so you can kind of picture this Christian and I'm like, miserable and I'm grumpy and, you know, I've got an angry face and, you know, but it's like, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, you know, where? Down in my heart. You know, it's certainly not up here. It's down there somewhere. Okay. That people, some people think like that, but scripture does not teach that distinction. There is no difference between happiness and joy. If there was, we would expect that here in this verse, Jesus would be talking about joy rather than happiness, but he says happy. He says blessed. He says makarios. He doesn't say you're joyful, joyful, joyful. He says you're happy, happy, happy. And he says it nine times. So people who make this distinction between happiness and joy, they're not as radical as Jesus is because his way is upside down. The, The poor are rich. The sad are happy. And look at number three. Number three, you're happy because you're not in control. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The opposite of meek or the opposite of gentle, we can say, is the control freak. The person who needs to be in charge of everything, who needs, who has a plan, who has a vision, who says, I know how things need to be. I got the world just the way I want it. Everything needs to be just like this. And so I'm going to advance my own cause by making my own plans. And I'm not going to tolerate any deviation, any, any problems on the way to establishing my little kingdom. That's the opposite of meek 
or gentle. That's the person that, that I'm tempted to be, that I think we're probably all tempted to be in one way or another that can manifest itself in different ways. But when it's all about me being in control, then my happiness depends on maintaining that control and keeping everything under my thumb. And and any deviation from my expectations is going to cause anger or, or frustration or fear or depression. But meekness, meekness is the recognition that, that I'm not in control, that I don't rule this world, that, that I have no power here. I'm not in control because God is. Our, our sovereign God, our holy God, our providential God, he's the one who's in control. I'm not independent and powerful. I am powerless. I am utterly dependent on God's plans and God's providence for every single breath. And so we know from Scripture that the world is going to change, but not because I make that change happen, but because all will ultimately come under the dominion of Christ Jesus the Lord. But that's not going to happen because I force it, but because he does it. We're just servants. We're just messengers. And so you can be meek. And in that meekness, Jesus says, you'll find happiness. You'll find happiness. So Jesus has shown us here, you're happy because you bring nothing to God. Number two, you're happy because your grief will end. Number three, you're happy because you're not in control. And number four, you're happy because you want what you need. You want what you need. Because look at verse six. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what a vivid picture this is. Have you ever been really hungry? Have you ever been really thirsty? You, you, you need that thing. You need that food. You need that drink. You're longing for it. You desire for it. I'll die if I don't get something to drink. Everybody's thirsty for something. Everybody is longing for something. But what our sinful nature thirsts after are things that do not ultimately satisfy. Sometimes we thirst after sin. We, we thirst after the opportunity to indulge our fleshly lusts. Sometimes we thirst after, uh, after wealth, after possessions, after comfort. But see, Jesus is saying that, that our hunger is tied to our happiness for better or for worse. Because in all of those earthly hungers, happiness is not there. We think happiness is there. We think if I get this thing that I'm hungering for, then I'll be happy. But two things are going to happen. Either you don't get it, and so then I'm unhappy because I never got the thing that I want. Or you do get it, but then you realize I got it and I'm still not happy. I'm still not happy. But Jesus is identifying here. He's saying the the deepest need and the deepest longing of his people, of his disciples, is for righteousness. We We can summarize as a right relationship with God and with other people. That's the righteousness here. And he's saying when that's your hunger when you're a true follower of Jesus, and so your desire, your hunger, is for to relate rightly to God and to his people, that's a hunger that will lead to happiness, and that's a hunger that God promises to satisfy. So as a Christian, you're happy, because no matter what else, whatever you do have, whatever you don't have, you're happy because you want what you really need. That's what Jesus says. Number five. You're happy because you don't get what you deserve. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy is, I committed the crime, but I didn't do the time. Right? 
I deserve consequences. I deserve punishment, but I, but I got off the hook. I was shown mercy. I was, I was forgiven. Psalm 25, 6 and 7 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. So are we going to be merciful? Are we going to be merciful? That's what that psalm is talking about. We, we, want, we want mercy. We want mercy from God. But see, when we are keeping track of everyone's sins against us, when our way of looking at the world is a way of kind of just always, we're, we're kind of the, got the tally marks and saying, okay, this person is really bad. And this person is pretty bad. And, the, and Terry over here, he's pretty good. But there, I got a couple things against him here. You know, we're just keeping track of everything. You know, how, how much everybody's doing for us, how much everyone's sinned against us, what they're thinking that's right, what they're thinking that's wrong. We're just always interacting on the basis of have you done enough? How, are you good enough? But see, when we're living that way, when we're living in a non-merciful way, we can't help but live in frustration we can't help but start to just kind of like, like, you know, I'm not really happy with any of you people, right? But Jesus offers his disciples freedom from that frustration. He offers them the happiness of, of not keeping track. We can treat people with mercy because we expect, we believe by faith that we will receive God's mercy, that our sins will be forgiven through the blood of Christ. So we can extend that same mercy to others. He goes on. He says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Of course, the Jews were very concerned about ceremonial purity, right? They wanted that external purity. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is turn their focus away from the external purity and turn it towards an inward purity, an internal relationship with God. He says, what we really need is a purity of heart. We need our hearts to be clean. We need our hearts to be unblemished. We need our hearts to be undivided and our focus on God, our loyalty to God and our worship of God. And so that's the idea of pure of heart. It's saying that, that nothing's getting in there. Nothing is, is staining our relationship with God. Nothing is, is drawing us away from our devotion to God. We are focused from the heart on the Lord and on his purposes. We could say it this way. We could say, number six, you're happy because you know what's most important. You know what's most important. You, you know that God and his plans and his purposes are most important. So you're devoting yourself to those things. And so... So we step away from that and say, well, what about impurity of heart? I've got, I've got hidden sin. I've got distraction from God. I've got a life that's, that's being lived in the darkness. Friends, that is a life of misery. That is a life of sorrow. But living in the light, walking in purity of heart, living among God's people and not feeling the need to hide or to perform because we know that every sin is forgiven and atoned for by Jesus Christ, that's the life of freedom. That's the life of the unburdened conscience. It's a life of joy, the life that sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you're happy because you know what's most important. But number seven, you're happy because you're like God. You're like God. Because when we say, you know, we sit here and we say, I wish this world were different. A biblical way to express that thought would be to say that the world is lacking peace. It's without peace because when we, we think about peace in the Bible, shalom is the Hebrew word. 
that doesn't just mean, you know, we think of peace in English, we're thinking of, like, here's these two armies, and they're fighting, and they stopped fighting, and so they're at peace. It's the cessation of hostilities. But in Scripture, peace is more than just not being at war. It's the situation where everything is as it's supposed to be. It's the situation where everything is made right, is made, is made whole. And so Jesus is saying is that his disciples are those who are looking for that absence of peace. We're, we're, we're living in the world and we're looking for the absence of shalom. We're looking for areas of brokenness. We're looking for things that are not the way that God designed them to be. And we're seeking to mend that. We're seeking to put that back together. And so we can, of course, make peace in any kind of temporal ways by opposing injustice, by helping people who are hurting. But even more so, we can publish peace, as it says in Isaiah 52, in an ultimate sense by bringing the good news of the gospel that our God reigns. That's the ultimate way to bring peace to the world. And so whether we're in Dubai or in Granbury or wherever else we come from, true happiness is not found in living in our corner with our eyes closed and ignoring the brokenness of the world, but in turning towards the brokenness of the world and being a bringer of peace to the world, of making peace where it is lacking to the extent that we're able to do it. We seek peace in the world not because we believe that that we individually are the solution to the world's problems, but because our God is a bringer of peace. He's a bringer of shalom. And so as we love our neighbors, as we address the brokenness around us, as we proclaim the good news to everyone, in that way we are being sons of our Father. What does that mean? We're being like our Father. We're being like God. God is a bringer of peace. We're being like Him as we act in this world as peacemakers. And so in all this, Jesus is saying, he's saying that, that when you're my disciple, when you're, when you're being like God, when you're being seen by God, when you're living in relation to God, when you're having the hope of the kingdom of God, these are the things that matter. These are the things that bring happiness. Don't look for happiness other places. Look for happiness here in relation to God. Because this broken world that we live in, it offers a different kind of happiness. It's calling us to a counterfeit happiness and this false happiness seduces people and it compels Christians by saying happiness is found in you being you. Happiness is found in you doing your own thing and you finding comfort and you pursuing your own sense of identity as long as that identity is one of the ones that have been found to be acceptable in the modern culture. And the world also teaches us that happiness is found by winning. Happiness is found by you getting yours. Happiness is found by by you gaining your comfort, by you fighting for what you've got, by you crushing your opponents, and by you being right, by you proving, if you could just get up there and you could prove that all these people are idiots and that you're right and everyone else is wrong, then you could be happy, right? That's what the world teaches us. The world that we live in, it calls us to be the opposite of the kind of person described in Jesus' Beatitudes, It says, be rich in spirit. It says, get rid of all the things that make you mourn. It says, be in charge. Don't be meek. It says, hunger and thirst for a nicer car. It says, punish your enemies. It says, keep Christianity out here on the periphery. It says, look out for yourself. And so Christians get drawn in by that. We get sucked in by this this superficial, chintzy, worldly version of happiness. Or sometimes as Christians... We just kind of sit back and we're kind of okay with not being happy. We've come to, you know, we've accepted the world's definition of happiness. 
we feel that we lack the happiness that's offered on TV or, or whatever. So you say, well, I'm just unhappy. I'm just a, a sad person. I'm kind of miserable, but, you know, let's just keep on keeping on. And we say, you know, well, here we got this world. I got reasons for being unhappy. This world's against us. Haven't you seen who won the last election? And so here's all these people. They all hate God. They hate the Bible. They hate Jesus. The country's going to hell in a handbasket. So let's just spend our days here having our coffee and commiserating about the terrible state of the country. And we'll talk with people who think like us and we'll argue with people who don't. And we feel like, you know, we're the exception here. We know Jesus talks about happiness, but that's not for us. That's for other people who live in an easier place and an easier time. And so we can just be grumpy all the time. That's how we can live. Because these Bible people don't live in 2021. They don't know about global pandemic. They don't face all the kinds of idolatries that we do in this country. They don't have the pain and suffering that I have. Surely I am not expected to be happy. But then. But then we get to Jesus' eighth point. And we could summarize it like this in, in number eight. He says, you're happy. We could say even when people hurt Christians. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we can even go straight on to point nine, because he says you're happy even when people hate Christians. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So here's Jesus, and Jesus is not speaking to people who live in a nice country with nice laws and where everything corresponds to biblical morality and everybody goes to church and the best Christians are the most respected members of society where people are regularly locking up to you and saying, oh, what must I do to be saved? He's not envisioning a world like that. He's envisioning a world like the one we live in. And because the situation that he has in mind for his followers is one where claiming to follow Jesus and belonging to a church is going is to get you hated. Trying to obey scripture is going to get you excluded and lied about and slandered about and maybe fired from your job and maybe having your, your property or your house or your business taken from you unjustly. That's the kind of world that Jesus is thinking about here, one that maybe starts to resemble a little bit more and more our United States. And even more so, Jesus is thinking about situations where following Christ, being a Christian, might get you physically abused. It might get you beaten up. It might get you hauled into prison. It might even get you martyred. That's still true in places of the world close to where I live. So he's living in the real world. He's living in even in a more extreme, harsh version of the world than we do. And he says, no, my people are happy in that kind of a world. You know, I teach my hermeneutics students, you know, as we're talking about how to do exegesis and hermeneutics, say, hey, we want to look for the emphasis here. We want to look for the main things in the passage. And there's a lot of different ways that Scripture brings out emphasis in a passage. It focuses us on the main points. And so we've seen one emphasis here. We've seen this word happy that's repeated nine times. So clearly this is a passage about happiness, about the, the blessed state of Jesus' followers. But we can see a little more emphasis in these last two Beatitudes. We can see, first of all, they're at the end, right? Whenever you've got a list and you see what's on the end of the list, that tends to be the most important. Like if I say, hey, you know, there's, um, you know, there's uh, three, three baseball teams that are worth looking at. There's the, there's the Houston Astros, the, o- the Oakland A's, and there's the Texas Rangers. You know, that last one, that's the one I want you to look at, right? 
so that we usually emphasize what is last in the sequence. We can also see these Beatitudes, the last two, are longer. For example, the seventh Beatitude has only seven words in the original language. Others are similar. They're short. They're to the point. They're succinct. But these last two, number eight and nine, when we're talking about persecution, uh, the eighth Beatitude is 12 words. The ninth Beatitude is 16 words, so they're about twice as long as the other Beatitudes. And notice that on this theme of persecution, there's two Beatitudes, not one Beatitude. So again, there's emphasis. No other idea is doubled up like that. So this is what Jesus has been building up to. This is what he wants to emphasize, that this happiness that he's talking about this happiness that distinguishes the demeanor of the disciple, this this otherworldly happiness that comes from belonging to God, from bringing nothing to God, from, from anticipating the end of our grief, from living without control, from most wanting what you most need, from not getting what you deserve, from knowing what's most important, and for looking forward to a day when you will be like God. That happiness, Jesus is saying, that happiness, it's still there when people hurt Christians. And it's still there when people hate Christians. I want you to notice there's there's kind of a structure here about these Beatitudes. At each of the nine Beatitudes, it, it starts with this statement about happiness, blessed are the blank, and then there is a reason for the happiness, like they shall inherit the earth. And so for most of these Beatitudes, notice that the, the second part, the reason for the happiness, it's in the future tense. You see that for most of these, it says, they shall be, my Bible puts it. For example, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. And so it's saying, we're happy as Christians. Why? Because we're looking to the future. We're anticipating something that's not our present reality, but in the future will be our reality, that we're anticipating the return of Christ. We're anticipating the kingdom of Christ and eternity in the presence of Christ. And so seven out of the nine Beatitudes point us to that future hope, that future reality. But see this. For the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude, the bookends, if you will, the reason for the Beatitude is not future but it's present. It's present. The motivation is something that's true right now. And for both of them, these bookends, it's the same. First beatitude, last beatitude. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Grace Bible Church, this is true of you. You're poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And it's still true of you when people are against you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because if you've come to Jesus with poverty of spirit and you've said, I am a sinner, I deserve judgment and I deserve hell. And only by Jesus dying in my place and taking my sin upon himself can I be saved. So I'm crying out to Jesus as Savior and submitting to him as Lord. If that's true of you, he's now your king. And you're living now as a citizen of his kingdom, not just as a future hope, but as a present reality. And Jesus is saying that for his disciples, your, your, your emotion and your spirit and your demeanor and your conversations to be marked much less by your present environment and where you live right now and all the conversations and news and, and entertainments that go along with that, but, but much more you're going to be marked by your identity. Your identity, not your family identity or your national identity or your racial identity or your sexual identity, but on your eternal identity that you are a citizen of the kingdom 
of heaven. In Luke 10, 20, Jesus' disciples were excited about some ministry success that they'd had. So they come back to Jesus and they're celebrating. And he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits were subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And what he's saying is that when, when things are going great, if you win the lottery and you fulfill all of your earthly dreams, even then you should be more happy because you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what that means then is that when disaster strikes and when pain comes and your health fails and the loss mounts and the church is battered and the world is against you and against us, you're still happy because you're still a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, the apostle Peter, he's standing right next to Jesus when he says these things, right? It's one of the 12 disciples. And so Peter got it. He heard it. He was marked by this teaching So 30 years go by. And in these 30 years, Peter saw some stuff. He experienced some stuff. Peter, in the years after this Sermon on the Mount, he was personally beaten. He was personally imprisoned for his testimony of faith. He'd witnessed Jesus being hated and mocked and tortured and killed. He'd witnessed his friends and his fellow apostles being tortured and imprisoned and killed. And just before he himself was crucified upside down as a persecution against Christians, look what Peter wrote. Peter wrote 1 Peter 3. Go ahead and turn there if you want to, or I'll just read it. 1 Peter 3, 14. Peter writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be what? You'll be blessed. You'll be happy. Same word. He's recounting Jesus' words. He's saying, this is true for Christians. This is the hope of Christians that even if you suffer for righteous snakes, you'll be happy. So don't have fear of them. Don't be troubled. Next chapter, verse 14, 414 in 1 Peter. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, and that's going on right now, right? Here in America, you might not be being, you know, torn limb from limb for Christ, but you might be insulted for Christ. And look what he says. He says, but even if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are happy. You're happy even then. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So this is a permanent happiness. It's a fearless happiness. It's a resilient happiness. It's a, it's a supernatural happiness that comes upon believers from the Spirit of God. And in this whole passage up to this point, we haven't seen any commands, have we? He's just saying, this is what is. This is what's true. This is, this is what you are. You are happy. He's stating the facts. And so Jesus has given us this nine-point sermon about the kind of happy kingdom citizens through whom he's going to change the world. It's not, it's, it's not you do, it's you are. You are this, you are happy. But as I said, just like the, the good Baptist preacher that Jesus is, he's going to wrap this thing up with two points of application. So let's see what they are. So we get to verse 12, and we see the first imperative verbs of the passage. There's two of them, two imperatives in verse 12, and they repeat each other. Look at verse 12. Rejoice, command number one, And be glad, command number two, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You got that? So you are happy. He told us that nine times. 
And he told us why we are happy. And so what should we do? What's the application? How do we respond to this reality that we are, as Jesus' disciples, happy? The application is, be happy. Be glad. Rejoice. You are happy, so be happy. And you say, well, that's kind of circular, isn't it? Well, I don't think Jesus has lost where, he's, where he is in his preaching notes. You know, I don't think he's contradicting himself. It's kind of like, you know, I, I, just, I mentioned, I think, the other day I was in Peru and I was on this trip and, you know, and, and I figured it out. You know, I had enough money in my bank account to kind of pay for the expenses and, you know, buy the food and, and all this stuff for the trip. But then I, I'm, I'm there in Peru and I go up to the ATM to get some money out and it's like, zzzz, fail. My card doesn't work. My, so my ATM card is not, is not getting the money out of my account. So I, so I have money. I possess money. It's in my account. It's enough money, but, but I can't get at it. I don't, I don't, I'm not able to use it right now because it's in the, in the ATM and it won't come out. So what do I do? So then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got like five bucks in my wallet and we got to live on this for the next week. And so let's, you know, figure out how to do this. And so suddenly, even though I actually possess money, I'm living as though I don't possess it. And Jesus is recognizing that this is a danger for his disciples, that we possess all of this happiness as kingdom citizens, but he understands that in this broken world and the temptations of the world and of the flesh, and especially amidst the kind of hate and slander and persecution that, that God's people have always faced and that he's expecting for us, he expects that we're going to be tempted to live like unhappy people, even though we actually are happy, even though to us belongs the eternal happiness of the kingdom. And so let's say his application this way. He says, wherever you go, whatever they do, you need to prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. What he's saying is, your happiness matters. It matters whether you are a happy person or an unhappy person. That's not a superficial issue. That's not to be ignored. Your happiness matters. Your happiness is a priority. You should be happy as a believer. It's a command from our Lord Jesus. And see, I think he puts it at the front end of the Sermon on the Mount to put this in the most vivid possible terms that this is essential. Because I suppose if he didn't put this here, we might go on and read the sermon and we might read about anger and lust and divorce and hatred and anxiety. And and we might get in our heads that, you know, if I just kind of keep all of those rules, if I kind of keep on the straight and narrow and I act in a way that's obedient and keep away from these areas of sin, that now I'm living the healthy Christian life, no matter my attitude, no matter my demeanor, even if my face is glum and what people hear from me is mostly grumbling and complaining. And even if I spend most of my days just muddling through, I think, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm in church. I'm okay. I'm, I'm healthy. But Jesus is saying, he's saying unhappy Christians are unhealthy Christians. So, so GBC, you got to find that happiness. You got to seek out that happiness. You've got to, you got to find the lack of happiness in your heart and you've got to use that as a diagnostic, as a motivation to say, what is going on in my heart that here as a happy person, give all that I've been given as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, why am I unhappy? That's not okay. Don't let that linger. Don't let it stay. Root it out and address it. And you're saying, oh, you're just telling me just to kind of like buck up and put a smile on my face? No, I'm telling you, to find the happiness that's yours in Christ because Jesus is telling you to rejoice. It's a, it's a command. 
There's no COVID exception. There's no special cases for unemployment or chronic illness. There's no suffering that's too great. There's no opposition that's too strong. There's no hatred that's too intense because none of that compares to the glory that is set before us, to the joy that is set before us. So this command to rejoice is a command that very explicitly from Jesus applies to our very worst moments, to those moments when we are suffering unjustly, when we are being wronged and we are being uh, treated unfairly as Jesus was. And of course, it's a command that applies not only to those worst moments, but to every other moment as well, right? Kingdom citizens, we're not, we don't seek out opposition, but we do expect it. And when it comes, our first priority is not to escape it and not to fight against it and not to prove that we're better than it, but our priority is to maintain our joy in Christ amidst it. You know, George Mueller, the famous 19th century Christian leader who was known for his life of faith and of prayer, said it this way. This is him writing in his journal about his study of Scripture. He says, the point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary happiness, sorry, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. He goes on. The first thing to be concerned about was not about how much I might serve the Lord, how much I might glorify the Lord, how I might get my, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. And so what he's saying is he's saying happiness matters. That's where he starts his day. He goes to God's word. He reminds himself of God's promises. He, he diagnoses his unhappiness and he puts himself into the state that Jesus has called Christians to be in. And Jesus is saying, let's do that. Let's prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. And that's Jesus' first application. And there's another one. But before we get there, you know, we want to look at 5, 13 to 16. But let me tell you about a friend of mine. He may or may not be a family member of mine. I won't use his real name. Let's call him, let's call him Jim for the sake of the present moment. So Jim is a prepper. Do you know what a prepper is? He, Jim is like really concerned about the end of the world and the collapse of society. And so he's kind of getting ready for it. And so he's stockpiling weapons and he goes to Costco a lot and has a lot of canned goods and, and stuff, you know, and plastic bins in his garage. And so one of the things that Jim wants to be prepared for is he wants to be ready when the banking system collapses, And when we don't, we can't use banks anymore, we can't use money anymore. And so the way that Jim wants to be ready for that is that he takes most of his savings from his job and he converts them into gold and silver. So he's got all these bars of gold and silver. That's like his life savings. So you got the gold, but, but what do you do with it? And so, you know, there's a storage problem there. And so Jim has, has a brilliant security system. And his security system is he, he's got these buckets and he puts the buckets down in his basement and he puts the gold in the buckets and then he gets like these 20-pound bags of kitty litter and he dumps the kitty litter on top of the gold. And his plan is that if, you know, the thief comes in there, they're going to open the bucket and find the kitty litter and they're going to find it so unappealing that they never get down to where the gold is. Okay, so that's Jim's security system for his gold. He's... Uh, and see, I think what Jesus is saying here is something like that. Because in 13 to 16, we read it already. He uses these three images, the image of salt, of light, of a city. And with all of the three, 
he's emphasizing one point. And the point is, don't hide what you are. Don't hide what you are. Don't make your salt tasteless. Don't put your city in a valley. Don't put your light under a basket. Don't hide what you are. And what are you? What has he just said? What, what are you? Well, you're, you're happy. 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 Nine times he said it. That's what you are. So he's saying, don't hide that. Don't hide the happiness that is yours as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So friend, what's your aroma? How do you smell? Do you, do you convey happiness? I'm not talking about smell only, but, but how do people feel after interacting with you? What is it like to be around you? Some people have an aroma of anger, of frustration. Some people have an aroma of fear, of confusion, of, of doubt, of arrogance. Some people have just an aroma of lifelessness. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's what you feel when you interact with the person. It's what it's, you know, kind of like I, I came up to this person, I was having a good day, and I went away from them. I was like, oh, I kind of feel like sort of down in the dumps now. What is your aroma? How do people feel after being around you? Because he says here, he says, you're, you're happy, right? And if you're obeying the command of verse 12, and if you're walking with kingdom happiness through every difficulty of life, your, your aroma, your, your presence, what you convey to people will be that of happiness. You will be memorably happy. You will be infectiously happy. You will be compellingly happy. Not, not because, just because you're weird, even though you are weird as a Christian, sorry to tell you that, but people will find you intriguing because you can't be explained. Why is this person so happy when their car just broke down? Why is this person so happy when they just got fired for something they didn't do? Why is this person so happy when they're being arrested for the sake of Christ? Why is this person so happy when the politician they like didn't get elected? Why is this person so happy when they have to wear a mask at Walmart? It can't be explained. It isn't natural. There's a happiness that is here, and this happiness is here to be shared. So the first application is wherever you go, whatever you do, prioritize the happiness. Find that happiness in your own heart. But the second application is wherever you go, whatever they do, preach the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Preach the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Because guess what? We are here to change the world. We're given the opportunity to change the world because Jesus said it this way. He said, so that, this is verse 16, so that they, that is the world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Because guess what? That's what we want. We want the people of Texas to be saved. We want the people of, of America and of the UAE and of Iran and of Saudi Arabia and India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. We want all of them to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Right? We want people who don't know the gospel to hear it with clarity and to believe it. We want the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's the great end to which we devote our labor and our lives and our partnership. And how that's going to happen, Jesus says in verse 16, that it's going to happen when your light so shines before others. Shines, shines in what way? Shines in, in this way. Shines in the way that isn't hidden. And see, there's, there's got to be more to this light than happiness. There is, if we study the whole passage. It's all that's involved in reflecting the character of God that's taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But, 
But, but shining this light is certainly not less than the happiness that he's just repeated nine times, right? We are happy and we're here to deliver happiness. We're ambassadors of joy. We are messengers of a new world. We're here to invite you to come into a kingdom where there's no mourning and there's no sorrow and there's no pain. We're inviting you to become servants of a king who loves you and has designed a way for you to live that is good for you and is best for you to live with joy and hope in him and to one day be in his presence blameless with great joy. We're inviting you to that. We're calling people to come away from their substitute happinesses Because real happiness can be found. And we know the way. And see, that's a message that just doesn't work when it doesn't seem like the messengers believe it. And so when our priorities are secular, and when our hopes are material, and when our demeanor is embattled and we say, oh yeah, we we could be happy if only the Supreme Court would do what I want. See, our message is life, but our aroma is is death. We've been given gold and told to share it, but we're putting it in the kitty litter. And they got to dig through that to find something. And so when I speak the message of Christ, without showing the happiness of Christ, I'm communicating a, a false message, or at least a misleading message. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why American Christianity is in decline is that in recent generations we've focused so much on fighting maybe necessary cultural battles that we've not done a good job of communicating how good it is to be a Christian, how happy this life is, how how joyful and hopeful and free life is when sins are forgiven and we're living within the boundaries that God has provided for us, how, how fun marriage and family life can be when we're striving together to glorify God, how helpful and sustaining it is to walk beside others in the local church. Friends, being a Christian, it often isn't easy, but it is so very happy. So let's go into all the nations, and let's preach the gospel, and let's make disciples of Jesus Christ, but let's obey Christ and do so as happy people who are proclaiming the happiness of Christ's kingdom. If you're a Christian in America in 2021, there's certainly bad news. Things don't seem to be getting any better There seems to be every likelihood that hatred and opposition and persecution might keep increasing in this country. There's also good news. And the good news is here in this passage. And the good news is that it's precisely in the midst of persecution. It's precisely in the midst of those moments when happiness is least expected that Jesus' disciples have opportunities to most clearly show the distinctive joys of the kingdom of heaven. One of our friends in Dubai, a lady that's been in Heather's Bible study, recently went through a horrible time. Her friend, let's call her Marissa, she's from Africa. She had a husband who abused her physically and verbally for years. Eventually the husband divorced her, deserted their children. She's literally been through hell. And so as part of this divorce proceeding, the the UAE court mandated that our friend Marissa go to this uh, psychiatrist for counseling. And so that's part of their divorce process. So she didn't want to go, but there was, she had to go. So she went to this psychiatrist or psychologist, I forget which one. And so she goes into this place and here's this Muslim doctor and says, okay, you know, tell me about your situation. 
And so Marissa decides, she said, she said you know, I just decided that I, I didn't want to be there, but I would just tell him my testimony. So she did. So she shares about all these horrible things that have happened, about all these problems in her marriage. But she also shared her story, how she'd grown up thinking that she was a Christian, but not ever being in a church where she heard the true gospel preached, and how it was only in the very darkest moments of her marriage that she ultimately started reading the Bible, that she ultimately was invited to church and came to church and heard the gospel and how she was genuinely for the first time saved. And she joyfully shares how her faith in Christ has sustained her through all this pain and all of this loss. And she, she even joyfully says that she's glad all these horrible things happened to her because without them, she wouldn't have come to know Jesus. And this was supposed to be the first of several different sessions. And they get to the end of the hour and, and the Muslim doctor says, you know what? There's no need for you to come back next week. He says, I, I can't help you. Because he says, I need what you have more than you need what I have. And friends, the world needs what we have. The battle for Christian influence in American culture is lost. In the UAE, it never began. But the war for the hearts of men and women who are in bondage to deception and sin continues to rage. And our strategy is joy because ours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for for this church. Thank you for the kingdom of heaven that we get to be citizens of, for the happiness that is ours in Christ. They would be messengers and ambassadors of that joy today and for the rest of our lives. And may we bring that happiness to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.